Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... More. <laughs> that, that's your new name? That's where you're going it's with? hard to say it around these fangs, you know? you got to, like, bring your it's lips true. around it. It's, it's tricky. True. <laughs> it's, it's the real acting talent. <laughs> Andrea Subasati here. The and, vampire Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't already clued in... Today's episode is about those sexy, sexy, kind of morose, lays about vampires in uh, the Anne Rice Chronicles that were turned into films. So we're going to be talking about 1994's Interview with the Vampire and uh, 2002's Queen of the Damned. Yes. Big day. Big day. Yeah. Two big movies. They're really big movies. These are, like, huge movies in terms of the vampire subgenre, in terms of horror, in terms of the culture surrounding vampires and horror that I am really excited to talk about. Yeah, and we've talked about vampires before. Um, You know, we've done Bram Stoker's Dracula. We've done Fright Night and uh, The Lost Boys. Uh But these vampires have always felt kind of different. And um, I certainly know for myself, I saw Interview the Vampire, I think, shortly after it came out, like, on VHS. So I would have been about, like, nine. Okay. And, like, this was one of those films that, like, made adulthood seem really complicated. (laughs) I was like, so you're going to have sex, but sometimes it's going to be cool, but also just you're biting each other, but that's sexy? Uh Uh-huh. Little nine-year-old Alex did not know what was happening in her body at that point. Uh, So it was a very strange film. I'm sure my parents thought it was maybe a bit more horror than it is, you know, thoughts on life. Yes. Um, But uh, it's definitely stayed with me. I hadn't seen it in a number of years, like maybe Mm decades or so, uh, until returning to this episode. But I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I recalled. Okay. And how many moments had kind of stuck in my brain with this film. But as some of you know, uh, I kind of alluded to it in our last episode that I brought uh, and had indeed bought the uh, (laughs) interview with the vampire. Empire book and Queen of the Dam book, and I brought interview with me to Salem, and I got I don't know like a chapter and a half in, and I was like I can't do it, yeah. I can't, do it. and I wanted to do it so bad because at the epicenter I think of this whole episode is really Anne Rice, the author who has created these worlds, and um, I, I've never really delved into that arena before, and I was excited to, and it just it just didn't get me, so I figured you know what. I'm going to step away. I'm going to put this down rather than force myself and kind of come at it from my own way. Uh, But she she has a huge following. She has so much love. um, And I think her career and what she's done with it has been so impressive and so singular. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, like tremendously important to the horror genre. Bird's eye view of these two films. These films, they take really classic Um, you know, ancient permutations of the vampire as per Bram Stoker, as per like the original OG vampire. And it brings them into the modern day in really interesting ways. And and so I think that's what's really important about these vampire chronicles. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, Interview with the Vampire was published in 1976, The Vampire Lestat in 85. And then after that, there have been so many more. Anne Rice has been churning these out through the past couple of decades, uh, the last one, Blood Communion, came out in 2018. So these have been Shit. going and going and going. I remember reading Interview with the Vampire 
as a kid. I don't really remember it. I think, again, like my memories kind of like entangle with the movie a little bit. I read Queen of the Damned. Again, it's kind of muddy in my mm. brain. Uh, I, I've taken notes about some of the differences that maybe we can discuss. But when it comes to Tale of the Body Thief, Memnock, Merrick, like I don't know who these people are. I don't know where that went. This is a huge, humongous topic. But as per the Faculty of Horror, we're just going to dive into these two films because mm-hmm. we like talking about films. We'll talk about the books a little bit. We'll talk about the culture a little bit, but there is tremendous scholarship and discussion and culture around these films. So there's a lot more to discover if these films do capture you the way they captured so many. Yeah, and, and I think we should talk a little bit about Anne Rice the person because she's quite fascinating. I agree. Um, I think, and for me, um, maybe it's just you know how old I am and all of that. But the only other horror writer who kind of approaches that level is really Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And I think you can make the argument that Stephen King is quite a bit bigger than she is, but to me, I always kind of think of them almost on the same level Mm. in terms of what they have contributed to the genre, in terms of what they have uh, contributed in terms of their output. Um, And Anne Rice has had... um, you know, not necessarily the easiest life. And she's channeled that into her work. And, and I think that's what great artists do. Oh, yeah. The women writing horror. I think we can we can speak to that being a, a tricky, a tricky wicket, so to speak. And I don't think that was uh, any better or worse in 1976 when this is published. That she was married to a poet who was very commercially successful, and uh, the Vampire Chronicles did very well as well. Well, and even before 1976, um, you know, she'd been writing, she was doing her master's degree, um, you know, she's from uh, New Orleans, and it seemed like she always had this predilection to the macabre and the goth and the dark and all of those things, because that's so much embedded in New Orleans culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And very tragically, um, she had a daughter with her husband, and the daughter passed away from leukemia just before her sixth birthday. Yes, And that was uh, kind of the trigger that led her to write Interview with the Vampire, and she wanted to write about a child. Right. Um, Claudia. Yeah, who who could potentially live forever. Um, and then uh, she's going, you know, about writing all these books, having this tremendous output, this tremendous fandom that kind of came with people um, really responding to her books. And then, uh, again, very tragically, I think in uh, 2009 or 2010, her husband passed away. Mm. Um, and she had previously rejected the the Christian church or the Catholic church. And then she went back to it yeah. for a number of years and kind of got into a lot of religious output, mm-hmm. um, which was quite a deviation. She was denouncing her characters like Lestat. I think that kind of muddied the waters a little bit. But then, you know, as many people do, and, and we've said this before on this podcast, so um, I think if you believe in religion and you practice and you're a part of it and you have faith, you know, we think that's fantastic. I think what Anne Rice and many of us listening have developed an issue with is the way these institutions um, abuse power, mm-hmm. particularly the Catholic Church. Uh, if you need more on that, just watch Spotlight. So she has kind of gotten back. She now writing about werewolves and more vampires and stuff like that. So we kind of we get her back a bit now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm OK with it. So in European folklore... Vampires were originally described as these hideous, bloated, undead, and then they were kind of made over in early 19th century fiction. Um, So there's The Vampire Mm -hmm. by John Polidori, 
and that was famously a short work of prose that was written as part of the notorious horror writing contest that took place with Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron. Yeah, and、uh, of course, Mary Shelley、uh, developed Frankenstein from that evening, and you know, kind of changed the course of literature、uh, and science fiction forever.、Um, throughout the years, as that book was published, gained notoriety, she was able to put her actual name to it.、Um, and then John Polidori, he's he's an interesting figure, and I think we're going to talk about him a little bit more as we talk about some of the dynamics in the first film. But to situate it a little bit,、uh, John Polidori was actually the doctor to Lord Byron, and he kind of just hung out with Byron a lot.、Mm. They were they were buds, but there was also a certain amount of competition, and、um, there was a lot of. Angst between them, and then on this night in Geneva, they were doing this contest to come up with the scariest story, and Polidori came up with the vampire. It, it, it's it's kind of a, a, a story that traverses time and place, and it really it's a real rollicking adventure,、um, and it. Really plays with this notion of you know the aristocracy being feared because they would feed on the blood of、uh, people lesser than them or other people equal to them to maintain their youth and、mm -hmm. uh, they're pulling from historical figures like Gilles de Ray or Elizabeth Bathory. I'm sure it's a coincidence that they're both French. Don't worry about it. <laughs>、um, and essentially, Polidori felt that his. Stature was being lessened the closer he was to Byron, and it was kind of, frankly, sucking the life out of him. <laughs> and、uh, so eventually, this story that he wrote, the vampire,、uh, kind of lay dormant for a few years, and then it was published. But it was published under Lord Byron's name. What? Yeah. How does that happen? Because I don't know, it was like a, a, another、uh, reporter got a hold of it and just assumed it was Byron, so published it, and it got all of these fantastic notices.、Mm. And I think it just kind of pushed Polidori over the edge, and、uh, he killed himself、uh, by taking a cyanide capsule at the age of twenty-five. Shit! It's a, it's a. I'm giving you the most abbreviated version of this story, but it is fascinating. I will link the article I was reading in the show notes because yeah, please. Holy shit! Okay,、um, and then I mean that was in 1819, and then I think the next big thing in vampires was Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla,、mm -hmm. which was published in 1872, which is a story about a lonely, rich girl who dreams of a beautiful visitor in her chamber who bites her on the breast, but no wound was found. And later, this girl meets the beautiful Carmilla. The two become close friends, and even though Carmilla remains mysterious about her background, she often makes romantic advances at Laura. This is like the earliest. Indication of the lesbian vampire trope、mm. that then carried into Hammer Horror ad nauseum. Their lesbian attraction is the main dynamic between the two, and the story spawned this entire subgenre. And it, it's about succumbing to perverse temptation, sin, a beautiful force of corruption. So I feel like that's where the the sexuality and the eroticism、mm. was kind of injected into the figure of the vampire. And then fast forward. Another twenty years to Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897, which we discussed at length in our Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that's what spawned the distinctive vampire genre as we know it today—a very supernatural figure, a very tragic figure, a very gothic figure.、Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then, you know, the vampire literary tradition, like, they'll pop up here and there. But I really would say, and I think, frankly, scholars agree with me. Four out of five scholars agree with the faculty <laughs> of horror on this one. Um of course, there was uh, Hammer Horror brought vampires kind of back to life for a little bit in the uh-huh. 50s and 60s, as Andrea has already alluded to. Um, there was Dracula of the Universal Monsters. But really, then you have 1976, an interview with the vampire and the whole beginning of the Vampire Chronicles. Uh-huh. And that really began to take some of the stuff that people were familiar with in terms of this brooding, dark foreign figure, uh, but changed it mm-hmm. and made it a bit more human. A bit more human, a bit more cerebral, definitely more philosophical, like seeing right from the point of view of a vampire, and the Vampire Chronicles go along to take the point of view of several other vampires with differing accounts of the same events, which I think is really interesting. And uh, and yeah, just drags them into the modern context. If you're wondering what happened between 1976 and 1994 to make this film happen. A lot. A lot. So, without further ado... Let's Let's get into it. Let's jump into our first film. So, this is Neil Jordan's 1994 film, Interview with a Vampire. Shit! Hang on. What? I keep saying, ah, it's the vampire. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's part of it. We should talk about that. I know. It's I don't the think Mandela we should effect. cut that. It's the Mandela effect. <laughs> is it or is it just kind of logic? Like interview saw... with a vampire it just sounds like a title. The vampire seems to imply well, that. So it's interesting because it's – it's. Uh, I always think of the title. So a vampire. Yes. Which I think I always think of because in the back of my head I know essentially the Vampire Chronicles is ultimately about Lestat. Yes. Yeah. So it would make sense if you're interviewing Louie that it would be a vampire mm-hmm. with some dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the vampire implies the importance of Louie. Mm-hmm. Which, in the grand scheme of things, Louie's kind of a little bitch. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I have thoughts about that. We <laughs> okay. can talk about that. <laughs> I didn't tell you that pre-show. But... Well, all right. Uh, let, let, we'll get okay. into the movie. Okay. Neil Jordan's 1994 film, Interview with the Vampire. I want you to say we get started. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all of it. I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. What if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bit of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power eternal life and a daughter who would be forever young this is the only real evil left and then he took the light of day you're a vampire never knew 
what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. I can't stand this any longer. You made us what we are, didn't you? God kills indiscriminately, and so shall we. You like dying? You condemn me to hell! Kirsten Dunst and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire. Louis, a vampire, tells his life story to a San Francisco reporter, Daniel. Louis tells him he was turned into a vampire 200 years prior by the vampire Lestat, an evil but charming figure, and the two soon turn a young girl, Claudia, into a vampire after it becomes apparent that she will soon succumb to the illness that is plaguing New Orleans. While they form a family unit, Claudia's bloodlust is matched only by Lestat, and she begins to turn on him, frustrated that she will remain in her child's body for eternity. Thinking they've killed him, Louis and Claudia depart for Paris, where they encounter a colony of vampires. The vampires learn that Claudia and Louis murdered Lestat and sentence Claudia to death. After Claudia is murdered, Louis burns the vampire colony to the ground, killing nearly all of them. Louis returns to New Orleans, and he comes across a barely alive Lestat, who asks Louis to join him and continue their life together. Louis rejects him. At this point, Daniel, the reporter, cannot believe the fantastic story he has been told and asks to be turned into a vampire. Louis is disgusted that he has learned nothing from his story, and he leaves. The film ends with Lestat returning to then turn Daniel into a vampire. Which I love. I I love that ending. Well, I love Tom Cruise in this movie. He's fantastic. Can we can we just start with talking about Tom Cruise in this movie? Yes, let's start. Otherwise, there. I feel like I I won't stop. So, I think point A, uh-huh. it's shitty that he's part of a cult and it's an abusive cult that has done a lot of damage and has taken a lot of money from a lot of people. This is back when we didn't know that. I know. But you're okay, so everyone note that. Mm-hmm. Note that in okay. your heads yeah, while we talk on. about him. Moving on. But, um, fuck, I tweeted this, like, years ago, like, bring me back to 1994 when Tom Cruise was weird as shit. Mm-hmm. And because he was doing, like, Top Gun, Cocktail, Born on Fourth of July, these, like, leading man roles. And then he came in with this, like, bombastic, flamboyant, over-the-top portrayal of Lestat. And... It's wonderful. That's right. Like, we'd never seen a vampire like this before. A vampire who was so brash. A vampire Ooh. who so, like, reveled in his bloodlust and made jokes about it and played the piano and was, like, this coquettish, androgynous dandy. Like, that was not only unusual for Tom Cruise and for cinema, but vampires. Yeah, he is having fun with this eternity, and I think you have illusions throughout the film that Lestat needed Louis maybe more than Louis needed him. 100%. That, that like, he, ne- he was lonely, so yeah. he needed to build this family. But once he has this family, he 
comes alive. And I really think this film would not have happened. And let's we can also maybe talk about the production history a bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, two years prior, 1992, you have Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. where you get this very brooding, very over-the-top Gary Oldman performance. Crossed oceans of time to find you. Regards. D. <laughs> like, you have this kind of, like, D. You have this endless depth, but also silliness, but also I have a lot of respect for Gary Oldman's performance. Cause, Me too! You know, no, not, no tea, no shade. No. But um, then you have uh, Lestat, and he's, you know, this iconic vampire in literature. And I think Tom Cruise did an excellent job bringing him to life. He doesn't seem... Cruz never seems embarrassed. He never seems scared of what he's going to do. He's not phoning he's, it in here. He's and, all in. And he's so charming when he's, like, slapping Claudia on the hand to say, no, 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 that's not how we eat our food. Oh, it's so funny. It's so funny. And then when he returns covered in, like, Stan Winston makeup yeah. multiple times, like, at the pe- – like, I remember being scared by that as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. It was, like – and he's owning that scene. And yeah. it's um, – and we talked a little about this, I think, on one of our Patreon episodes when we talked about some stuff we've been watching recently. And I was talking about the way um, I'd seen Ad Astra and the way that Brad Pitt can hold a, a camera and mm-hmm. like hold the screen mm-hmm. back in 1994. Not so much. Not so much. And, and uh, we'll talk about what maybe why. But uh, Cruz. He has always been able to hold a camera. Mm-hmm. He can he can just like that frame. It just like it goes immediately to him. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan, really. But anytime I see him in something, I'm like, holy shit, you are trying. Mm-hmm. You are here. You are present. Mm-hmm. And you're working your little ass off. I'm a Lestat fan. I'm going to say it. If I were a vampire, I would be Lestat. <laughs> he would be my jam. And famously, Anne Rice was not terribly impressed with that casting. She wasn't happy with Tom Cruise. She had she had some ideas of some French European actors in her head that she wanted to play. She's like, oh, I don't, I don't know about this. Maybe even Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise should swap roles. Mm-hmm. And she said things like that. And she famously recanted after the movie came out. She actually called up Tom Cruise and apologized and said, my bad, you killed it. You yeah. slayed it, for lack of a better term. And uh, apparently my favorite, because you can read all about the other casting options um, that were on the table Mm -hmm. uh, throughout this whole, you know, 20-odd-year process Mm -hmm. that they went through. Uh, My favorite was that she really wanted Tom Hanks. Oh, my God. Um, I'm sorry, but Tom Hanks has zero sex appeal. And when we're talking about this film, we're talking Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, and Antonio Banderas. This is like the trifecta of... Christian Slater. Okay. Yeah. Just say it. Say it. It's supposed to be River Phoenix is what I'm going to say. It was. (laughs) And River Phoenix... was actually supposed to play the interviewer, and he passed uh, very tragically due to uh, a heroin overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was incredibly sad. And then uh, they called Slater. He agreed to take the part, and he donated uh, his entire salary to two charities that River Phoenix supported. So Yeah. The film is dedicated to him. Yeah. But oh, also, sh- Christian Slater can really wear a vest. <laughs> I love how this reporter, it's just kind of like, you know, in all your millennia, Louis, you couldn't have written a memoir. Because I often Lestat say... Lestat does it. Well, yeah. And, and again, when I say that I would have been Lestat, I feel like I would have been this bombastic. I would have taken these centuries of immortality to learn to write. 
to write numerous well, books, to I, start a YouTube channel, much less a rock band. And I feel like this is where some of my problems comes in from when I was trying to read the book. And again, it just didn't speak to me. And I am in the minority because a lot of people really, really love these books. But um, there's a, a part in the film where um, Lestat says to Louis early on in his vampire days, like, mm-hmm. uh, read her thoughts. Mm-hmm, and Louis mm-hmm. says, I can't do that. And Lestat says something like, oh, well, it's... Um, the power is different for everyone. The power everyone. is different for yeah. everyone. And I was watching this film and I was like, holy shit, Louis' power must be to talk. Oh, God, to whine. <laughs> for holy shit. Now, he is a brooding little bitch. And he was before he died and after he died. And this this actually is something that I remember from Interview with the Vampire, that he was, that he, there's a great fatalism that surrounds Louis. He is racked with guilt. But I feel like it's so interesting that Within the three characters, within Claudia, Lestat, and Louis, that this story, you know, centrally targets, Louis is kind of the only one who really consented to his vampirism, and yet he's the one who complains the most about it. Now, granted, his consent was kind of, ah, I'm about to die. Do I really want to die? Maybe not. Like, it was kind of a murky consent, but even so, he was the one who was offered the choice that Lestat didn't offer anyone else, blah, 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 right? Have you said your goodbyes to the light? So I mentioned that Anne Rice was opposed to the casting of Lestat, and at one point she actually rewrote the role of Louis to be female, such that Hollywood wouldn't water down the sexual nature of his relationship to Lestat. And I have that Cher was re- <laughs> was briefly considered and even wrote a song for it, um, which appears somewhere. I didn't write it down, but it appears on uh, on one of her albums. She kind of she kind of wrote this kind of vampire song and. I think it's really significant that, you know, this is a movie in 1994. I read it as gay as all motherfuck. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, it astonishes me that it was still made with all that uh, homoerotic subtext. But on the other hand, it it still played it very, very safe. And, you know, this, um, this filmmaker is coming off of, you know, the crying game. Yes. So he's not afraid of tackling some taboo, but I feel like Interview with the Vampire really, um, for lack of a better term, pussyfoots around that nicely. It does. And for anyone who doesn't know or didn't see uh, the now incredibly unfortunate Ace Ventura Pet Detective, uh, The Crying Game is about... um, Ireland uh, through the Troubles and um, uh, a man falling in love with 
someone who he discovers is a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a really powerful film. And Neil Jordan, the director of this film, is a really, really interesting filmmaker. Um, he's gone on. He's still working. Um, and his first, I believe it's his first film, certainly his film p- prior to The Crying Game, is a film called The Company of Wolves, which I would love to do on the podcast. We should have done that instead of The Brotherhood of Wolves. Yeah, well, that's why we're going to do another werewolf episode. Okay, okay. Um, But it's a fascinating film. It's absolutely beautiful and has so much, like, going on in it. So Neil Jordan is a really interesting filmmaker, and he... um, I think kind of understood from the interviews I've read with him some of the gravitas that came with this film. And also, this film's budget was $70 million in 1994. That is like a $300 million budget now. It is huge. Okay. It is so huge. I'm trying to do the math in I my know. head. is like, is that a lot of money it's by today's like standards? It's not like inflation, but it's like Hollywood inflation. Okay. Um, so it's actually a huge, huge budget. Um, David Geffen, who is more known in the music world, uh. um, prior to this he'd done uh, Beetlejuice, things like that, because he had an offshoot of Geffen films. And he um, brought in all this money because this script had been floating around and Anne Rice wrote it. It's now pretty much common knowledge, I think, that Neil Jordan did uh, quite a lot of heavy rewriting on it. Yes. Although, in the credits, he gives the sole screenplay credit to Anne Rice. Well, that's Writer's Guild laws. Bless his heart, (laughs) is what I choose to say. Yes. Um, But yeah, there is... uh, So there is a big budget for this, and it's a very weird film. And I think Neil Jordan is balancing that kind of like, he doesn't want to negate the queerness of this film, Mm -hmm. but he knows he can't explicitly say it. Mm -hmm. So, as two straight women Mm -hmm. who are allies, we hope, uh, to the LGBTQ community, I think this film does a really okay job of walking that line. I think so. I'm very happy to be wrong. I'm very happy for uh, anything to be pointed out that I might have missed. I feel like there isn't a whole lot of sexuality in their relationship. It's a sensuality. It's a fondness. It's a partnership. If anything, it kind of like, it, it really normalizes mm-hmm. a homosexual relationship. as Claudia per, like, has two dads. Two dads. Exactly. And it shows it as working and functional and fine, which I don't know how revolutionary that was back in 94, but if that came out today, that would be a talking point. I think it would. And, you know, I think maybe it doesn't have the kind of um, orgasmic nature of a new relationship because the film skips over that quite quickly. Yes. And it gets into the banality of the relationship. That's right. Very fast. That's right. I'm glad you pointed that out because when I was doing my research on the book, when I was just kind of refreshing myself on the 1976 novel, like Claudia's coup happens 60 years after living with Lestat. I think in the film she's supposed to be 30, and yet it's still a very bratty tantrum. You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to conceive that how much time passes uh, when Louis leaves Paris with Armand, the two travel for several years together as partners before they part ways. And, you know, the film, it's a film. It has to skip along at a good clip. But but these relationships, even the ones that appear to be fleeting in the film, in the book, are quite significant and long-term. 
Yeah, and I think that's something quite special, even just to see it represented on some level mm-hmm. on screen, um, as you were saying. But I think it goes back into um, the Lord Byron-John Polidori relationship, as we were talking about earlier. And if you guys are really interested in this subject and this kind of take on it, we will link this article in the show notes. And it's called Anne Rice and the Queering of Culture uh, by George E. Haggerty. And he brings in the Lord Byron and John Polidori relationship, uh, talking about that kind of they needed each other and they were close, but they also kind of fucking hated each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that weird symbiosis that happens between two people who care about each other, but they just they can't make it work. Yeah, I think it's really telling because Louis and Lestat have this um, – have a very realistic relationship Mm -hmm. in many ways as partners. Once you get through the love and the lust and you're kind of in it with someone and you're just like, you're just looking at each other Mm -hmm. going like, all right, it's been 30 years, honey. Yeah. What's next? And it's complicated by all this culpability where basically I mentioned that Louis consents to being transformed into a vampire, but he also blames Lestat Mm -hmm. for the fact that he's a vampire. And Lestat, if you've read the books, Lestat had, you know, he ran off with his lover prior to becoming a vampire, whereas Louis, you know, had a wife and child. And so I feel like the nature of Louis's resentment is like, you know, Lestat didn't turn him gay, quote unquote. Mm. But I do feel like there's a little bit of that kind of resentment that just kind of, you made me an outsider. You made me a ghoul. And insofar as he's participating in it, that resentment um, exists and that attachment is contested when they bring Claudia into the mix. Mm -hmm. And I love how complicated that is. Oh, yeah. It's it's, when you bring someone on, especially as a dependent, Mm -hmm. it completely changes the dynamic. But of course, as the years go on, Claudia is only a dependent in physical form. That's right. She's emotionally, intellectually, everything else, an adult. And I love the way that's handled in insofar as she is obsessed with playing with dolls. Everyone's obsessed with giving her dolls because she is, in effect, their doll perpetually. Yes. And what a fucking nightmare. It's it's funny. I'm uh, currently wrapping up a really long form piece right now on uh, Melancholia, the Lars von Trier film. I still haven't fucking seen that. Uh, I I love that film. I love it. And Kirsten Dunst is amazing in Melancholia. Mm-hmm. I've been watching it. I obviously watched it, and I've rewatched bits of it to like put this piece together. And hopefully, it'll be done soon. Uh, but watching her in her first film role. I I think she's incredible. Dude, she was small. I was astonished to see how tiny her frame was. Like, do you know how old she was? I think she was like 11 or 12. It's ridiculous the maturity that she brings to this. And insofar as their tantrums, like, I I buy it because she's been infantilized for 30 years Mm -hmm. as a killer. It's crazy. I mean, I'm still waiting for my boobs to come in. (laughs) But she, she is... This, I, she is an ideal of a child. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so interesting because of the way we look at women in culture and the way we examine um, young starlets uh, from Ariana Grande to Britney Spears to anyone like that. They, you know, enter the scene when they're 
like a musketeer into their teens. Mm -hmm. And then after that, when they actually start having issues and opinions and um, real world issues, like Mm -hmm. look at, uh, I think her name, uh, it's Demi Lovato, I think, Mm. um, who's gone through a lot of like rehab and rebirth and figuring herself out. Some people just don't want to fucking see it anymore. And we are playing with this um, notion of femininity, which is too complicated for us to want to look at and for us to want to talk about. It's the virgin whore binary. Mm-hmm. And once you cross that line, it's one or the other. And that that was the case with Brittany. That was the case with Christina Aguilera. That's like you're either asexual or so sexualized that there's nothing else to you. And I think it's so significant that – this is such a this is such an erotic view of vampires and the only real female vampire that we have insight to is this super desexualized child vampire who wants to have the eroticism and the seduction that that behooves her position as vampire to be honest and i find that scene where she actually loses it on lestat when, you know, she's on her bed and her bed is covered with dolls mm-hmm. and she starts ripping them off to reveal the body mm-hmm. beneath them. And it's such an incredible moment. And it's almost as if that female body that she's obviously murdered and is kept underneath all these dolls mm-hmm. is like her matured, decayed self. Mm-hmm. It's this emotional self that she's held with her and that has just eroded through time because mm-hmm. she doesn't have anywhere to put that sexual energy, that intellect, that um, that wherewithal that she would have as a fully formed adult mm-hmm. where she could walk among the world and be treated as an adult. Yeah. I think one of my biggest critiques with this film is that it implies that that tantrum happened after 30. Yeah. <laughs> no, girl, that tantrum would have happened at age 17, if yeah. not sooner. And it's funny because like, they're living in an era where how you dress, everything is custom made, especially mm-hmm. when you're as rich and glamorous so as these people are. Where do they get their are. money? Uh, murder? Oh, okay. <laughs> should we get into murder? <laughs> Yes, I yes. Think we should get into murder. First of all, yes, we absolutely should. All right, cool. The Faculty of Horror is taking uh, requests for hits. Yeah. And uh, we just reap the benefits. But, like, Lestat was um, – Lestat's backstory, which we'll get into more in the next film, was that, you know, he was created by somebody who was fabulously wealthy and then abandoned. And so he was left with all this wealth. And then Louis, you know, he had his plantation, yes. which he then abandoned. So there's a sense well, of, like – also, slaves kind of – burn that shit to Oh, yeah, they around. sure did, which, like, power to them. They were <laughs> absolutely right. In the book, uh, the vampires murdered them all. In the movie, they oh. kind of just flee. Yeah, but, um, but like, there's wealth to be had, and wealth is kind of seen as a fleeting, mm-hmm. inconsequential thing when you're faced with something such as immortality and immortal beauty, Yeah, right? Like, I, you could waltz into an opera and kind of claim that cultural capital I, I think if you're a vampire, pretty easily. Yeah, and I think, you know, while we were just talking about the queer reading of this film, um, which I absolutely do see and agree with, the thing that really resonated with me as I was watching this film is the notion of class mm-hmm. and what their class and stature as white men allows them to have. Um, Privilege. Oh, my God. 
privilege. It's not even like privilege, capital P. It's like all caps privilege. All caps. Hashtag. Um, and I, I think this is something we're kind of seeing out of the Stoker tradition, but mm-hmm. that Anne Rice has really embraced because it's not, you know, someone who has crossed oceans and lands of time. It's people who are just like, I got to live every fucking day. I might go to for a nap for a few hundred years, but I'm going to live every mm-hmm. day. I'm walking around. I'm doing my thing. Um, and that these vampires are noble. They are so coded in this film as noble. You know, there's basically a shopping montage for Claudia when she becomes part of their family, mm-hmm. you know, between the dresses and the dolls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they have all of this access to money and finery or some something that allows them to have that and to consume it. And that they consume these elements with a certain amount of social delight. Um, even when they uh, they talk about uh, when Louis talks about how uh, Lestat likes to pick off his prey throughout the evening. And something really interesting that they do as we're talking about Claudia is um, when Louis encounters Claudia. She's next to her deceased mother, mm-hmm. who has succumbed to uh, this yeah. heartbreaking like, scene. It's it's a, again. We have Stan Winston doing the effects on this mm-hmm. film, so it's like a pretty gruesome corpse mm-hmm. that's sitting, you know, in front of poor Kirsten Dunst, and she's weeping over this body. And Louis just like, he, I get it. You want to save this kid, yeah. Especially when you know how bankable she'll be in those Star uh, Spider Man movies, and he's thirsty. He's thirsty. He's been fighting it, and so he kind of gives in. Anyway, he does that whole thing. But from my reading of that scene, is she seems to be lower class. She says, "Papa ran mm-hmm. off, mom's dead. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen?" Mm-hmm. And so she is essentially, I would say, I would read her as lower class within this film in mm-hmm. that moment. And they actually are able to transgress those norms, those social norms, that class norm, and bring her into this bougie aristocracy where she can have that finery, where she can have those epic luxuries, even mm-hmm. though this kind of a trap because she is trapped within her body as it is as a child. Yeah. And like they elevated her. They adopted they, her into this. And that's the kind of deal with the devil uh-huh. that she unwittingly makes. Um, and I think there is a lot of... Um, feeding off of others, you know, as described throughout the film in various different ways that allows them to be this exceptional bourgeoisie family. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I always found was really, really interesting, um, and it kind of related back to some research I'd done years ago. Um, So you know how uh, Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise or Louis or Lestat, they're always talking about how you can if you have to eat animals. Yes. And always, I remember this from when I was a kid, is Louis having to eat rats. Yes. I, I thought that was always fascinating. And then when I was doing research for my first book on New French Extremity, um, I came across this quote from Voltaire. And um, it Voltaire. Was, Voltaire. And uh, obviously he was around on like the eve of the French Revolution, you know, that thing. And um, the liberals who were, you know, kind of part of the revolution at that point, but they were all figuring it out. This is the quote that jumped out at me that I I remembered to, and I wanted to bring up in this episode. Voltaire said, I would rather be ruled by one lion than by a hundred rats. 
And I thought that was so perfect because you, I have this really intense image of, like, Brad Pitt eating a fucking rat. Mm-hmm. But also Tom, um, Tom Cruise as Lestat coded so heavily as a lion from his, mm. like, blonde hair as a man. Yeah. And he's, like, talked about how he the studied. Leon Cour is his Leon last Cour, name. Yeah. Like, and he studied, like, wildcats for the role and all of right. that. And so it's, you know, we choose who we are a part of. And so much of this film, and when they are happy and when they are exceptional, is when they are with Lestat. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is like the most joy of this film, is when they're operating as that unit. Um, As part of his pack, his pride. Like, he has that feline kind of leader. We are at the top of the food chain, and everybody else is our food, and we can play with them, and we can eat them, and we can fuck them, and it's fine. Mm. That's my it fun. terrible imitation. That's but it also fun. rings of some kind of nouveau riche, right? Mm-hmm. It's like for Claudia to have been born poor and to to become a vampire, she's so thirsty. And she takes to blood sucking so quickly that it's just kind of like, I, I, I've gone without. Now I want more. I want some more. Of course. So there was a review uh, by the British magazine Empire, and they specialize in film, and I've read it on and off for a number of years, and they do a lot of great film journalism. And I was reading uh, the uh, review that they did kind of in retrospect um, of Interview with the Vampire. So it was kind of recent. Okay. It came out in the last couple of years. Okay. And it's pretty straightforward, just like, you know, there's some great performances, there are some moments that sag, blah, blah, blah. Fair and fair and fair. Fair and fair. But they called it... The first existential vampire film. And I thought that was really interesting. Totally. And we've talked Bam. about existentialism a little bit on this podcast over for the almost seven years uh, that we've been doing it. And it is a term, existentialism, that belongs to intellectual history. So it was adopted by Jean-Paul Sartre, and it was really a cultural movement that came about through the 19th and 20th century, but it really took hold and flourished in Europe in the 1940s and 50s. And existentialism claims that um, a person cannot be defined by moral goods, truth, uh, scientific, biological Issues that essentially those are too rote to define any one person, and that authenticity is necessary to grasp human existence, and that the nature of human existence is determined by an individual's freely made choices. Right. And that's why I find it so fascinating that this film harps on about the notion of choice. Mm-hmm. Lestat says it consistently. Uh, Louis, I don't know, he's fucking making choices, not making choices. Things are... He he's makes, making choices and not owning his choices. Yeah. I like, dare say. He's, you know, they kind of fall into... Immortality, sure. But he doesn't give it much thought until it's too late. Exactly. Like, if this film really centers on Louis, and I think it does, Mm -hmm. um, his choices are basically made up of these momentary lapses in judgment. Yeah. You know? And sometimes moments can last a long time. Sometimes you're in a funk for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he's making choices out of emotion and out of uh, a kind of sensitivity that is almost otherworldly, even before he's a vampire. And I think that kind of speaks to a little bit what we were mentioning earlier of Anne Rice saying, like, oh, you know, it could have been a woman. Like, Louis is kind of a vehicle for me. That's how I saw it. Mm -hmm. Um, And having those 
fleeting moments when he, you know, bites Claudia, but he can't finish the job. And so Lestat does it. Like, Lestat is essentially supporting this kind of projection that Louis has on the world. Mm-hmm. And he is, you know, I think deeply in love with Louis. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, chasing that down. And I, I really think one of the most heartbreaking scenes in this film is is when uh, Louis uh, leaves the movie theater in his, you know, blousy 80s suit. So blousy. So it's, it's rippling in the wind, guys. And his long hair. Oh, bless him. <laughs> Legend of the Falls, and um, and he he smells death, and he goes in, and he finds Lestat, who's basically on some kind of verge of some kind of death, <sighs> and I, I think it's hard to read that moment as anything other than um, a commentary on the AIDS crisis. Hmm. You know, someone who and you know I think this is a very simplified version of um, the AIDS epidemic, but someone who has lived to excess and then is re-encountered and he is essentially enfeebled. Oh, shit. And it is so dark and it is so tragic. And and I actually saw this film. So when I was a kid, um, my godfather actually passed away from AIDS when I was 11. So I'd seen it probably a few years prior Probably when I was about nine, nine or ten, and then revisiting it over the years, it's always been that moment of you see someone when they're in their prime and then how they can be devastated from a disease and it can just rip them apart. Interesting. And that for me at the end of the film is why it's so satisfying to see Lestat come back Uh in that moment when he's going to kill Daniel or turn him into a vampire. And you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, let's just like, yeah, he's back. Uh You all thought he was down. No, he's not. Mm -hmm. Eat a few more steaks. He's fine. But I, I think there is an incredible amount of pathos. And I feel like in that moment, in terms of existentialism, you see how much Lestat has given to Louis. And that it has damaged him almost beyond repair. Mm. And I I think it's a really powerful scene. I think it's a really important scene. Mm -hmm. And I think it does a lot um, for various readings of this film. And I'm really glad they included it because originally they had shot scenes of him showing up, uh, of Lestat showing up in Paris uh, during all the vampire colony Yeah, well, as per the book, he's the one who fingers that they tried to kill me. And at least... Particularly Claudia, he takes yeah. out his vengeance, and he that's fingers how the vampire colony. He fingers them all. <laughs> Stop it! Don't. I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> what I do before we leave interview the vampire, I do want to talk about the Paris section and the theater of vampires section. I love that part. Okay, and that's interesting because I've been reading that so many people love that part, and I actually feel when Tom Cruise leaves this movie. I lose the movie a bit. I miss him, but that's part of it. I feel like that's where the film really picks up. And, and funnily enough, when I when it came to rewatching this film for the purposes of this podcast, my partner was like, "Well, that movie's kind of boring." And I was like, what? (laughs) This movie's the furthest thing from boring because in my mind, I'm picturing Louis wielding a scythe in flames. Like, that is the image that occurs to me. beloved actor Stephen Ray. He bisects them and he burns down the motherfucking catacombs. And then I also think of the performance. I, I, I think of Louis' discovery. Like, 
Speaking of epistemology, they have no idea what it is they are. This meta-referentiality that we're going to get into, Queen of the Damned, none of that is present in Interview with the Vampire. All they know about their kind, about what a vampire is, does, their history, their lore, all they know is whatever little snippets that Lestat threw at them like scraps. You know what I mean? And I think that's part of Lestat's complicated manipulation of them. That's, mm. that's part of this whole big web of bullshit that I fucking love. And it all comes to a head when they discover all these vampires in Paris. There's a whole coven. They all know what's going on. They know so much more. And they have a sense of law. They have a sense of justice that Louis and Claudia were completely oblivious to. And so I feel like that's where the film really, like, ramps it up to 11. Yeah, it's... I don't... I'm not angry at those scenes. I just... You miss him. It's okay. I miss him. I miss him. Um, But there's so much going on in these scenes. And, you know, there is, while they call it a theater of vampires, it's really a theater of humans. And the whole scene that they have going on where they bring in the frightened girl and, you know, Antonio Banderas tells her not to worry. You know, there's something very changed about it. It's really flipping. It's it's reversing the roles that we would currently have uh, in an audience sitting and watching something to taking that audience and kind of perverting it, for lack of a better term. And it's very similar and calls back to the Grand Guignol Theater, mm-hmm. uh, which was incredibly popular at the turn of the century through the 1960s in Paris that depicted incredibly violent, horrific horror theater mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. Um, and it, it's like the literal version of that. It was, you know, buckets of actual blood spilling on the audience. And I, I think one of the most interesting things for me is we get to meet Armand, as played by Antonio Banderas in this scene, is how easy it is to um, have the guise of humanity to produce those um things that would calm someone down to make them feel safe, things like that, and then to turn on them. Yeah, he's an interesting figure because, as I mentioned before, Louis and Claudia have no concept of what a vampire is. And here they come to Paris, and the vampire is a fiction, and it is a spectacle. And so they're used to skulking around in the shadows. And here are these vampires who are laying themselves bare, but under the guise of fiction. And so they're getting away with it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that middle... That middle space that, uh, you know, like Lestat is going to occupy the opposite extreme in the next movie that we're going to talk about. Um, But I I think it's so significant that during that performance, a woman jumps up and is said, I I would love to be your victim. Mm -hmm. Because this movie is so preoccupied with choice and consent. But this is the first time that we start seeing someone be like, I am enamored with your bloodlust and your mystery and I would sign on to it. And that's also around when we deal with Claudia's pseudo-mom, Madeleine. And again, Madeleine is kind of the first to really opt into this situation. She has her own grievances. She has her own mommy issues. She wants to be a mother to Claudia and Claudia needs a mother because she feels like she's losing Louis to Armand. So like all of this, all of these webs kind of culminate in this moment in Paris where people are actually willing to give themselves over to this kind of immortality. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think really upsets Louis. And it's it, it's a theme that is so fascinating in the next movie we're going to talk about. 
It is. And, um, yeah, there's so much to this film. There is so many moments. But it's, it's essentially that, I think at its base level, uh, it's bringing these vampires, these big gothic figures of lore, down to people Myths. who just want to be with other people like yeah. them. They, they desire connection. They're jealous. They're flighty. They're, um, they're you know... They have so much going on in their lives that um, as the decades go on and on, I think eternity just provides more complications than it provides solutions. That's right. But also progress and technology and the arts. Like uh, if you're alone in a plantation in New Orleans, you don't know what's going on in the great wider world of like this pre-internet, <laughs> pre-everything. <sighs> anyway, shall we move on? All right. Let's uh, let's let's move forward. Let's let's go to a let's fast forward time to a crazier time and a much crazier movie. Which, you know, it's 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 not as good. This isn't a Neil Jordan uh, Oscar bait film, but I do feel like it explores these questions and these subjects that we're talking about, and, and it takes them to a new level, whether that's above and or below. Absolutely. Let's so, go there. Let's go there. This is 2002's Queen of the the Damned. It's a fear. A fear that turns to horror. The irresistible vampire Lestat. A presence so powerful. It has awakened an ancient evil. Pleasure in only one thing destroying life. Human and immortal alike. Let her come. I've come to give you the world. We are the powerful. We should walk fearless in the open. The start has joined with Akasha. Lost to us now. Step aside. Never. Join me or die. All she wants is hell on earth. We must fight a cash. Lestat's point of view, the vampires slumbered for decades after that fiasco with Louis, only to be awakened by the sound of a gothic rock band practicing. He joins the band, and the group, who now call themselves the Vampire Lestat, are an international sensation. He's very overt about his vampirism, which draws the attention of not only the vampire community, who are sworn to keep their existence a secret, but also the Talamasca, a paranormal studies group who have been studying vampires for years. 
One member of this group, Jesse, reads Lestat's journal and we see his origin story, how he turned into a vampire and was then abandoned by Marius, who was responsible for guarding the slumbering statues of those who must be kept, Enkil and Akasha, the first vampires. Back to the present, Marius begs Lestat to call off his upcoming concert in Death Valley, but he refuses. At the show, a bunch of vampires attack him, but Marius helps fight them off until Akasha shows up and spirits Lestat away for a little vampire honeymoon, so to speak. She likes his refusal to live in the shadows and invites him to be her king as she intends to take over and make slaves of humanity. And in the end, he betrays her, Jesse gets turned into a vampire, and she and Lestat, I don't know, they live happily ever after, I guess. Sure. That's my synopsis of Queen of the Damned. But if you've been following me and my career, this is always the film when people ask what your guilty pleasure in horror is. I fucking love this movie. It's it's so fun. It's so fun. And I hadn't seen this film before doing this episode and I watched it and I think my mouth was agape the whole time at the what fuckery I was watching. It is so, so different from Interview with the Vampire in so many so ways. So different. And then I actually had to rewatch the entire film again prior to doing this episode just so <laughs> I could actually think about it and not just be like, Minus what's the, the shock value? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, a whole bunch of fun. Yeah. It's a whole, it's not, it's not like, not even Golden Globe level. No. <laughs> but it is really fun. And this film, if uh, if you're not aware, this film kind of it covers the Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned, who which were the two uh, books that followed Interview with the Vampire. The Vampire Lestat was published in 1985, and Queen of the Damned was published in 1988. So there's a lot that's gone on in Anne Rice's head between these films and she is on record as having been unhappy with like you're skipping right to Queen of the Damned you know the vampire Lestat has his whole backstory that should get its own movie but uh, but not if Stuart Townsend's playing him nope it <laughs> skips right ahead and it makes some creative liberties with the lore but for myself having read the vampire lestat and the queen of the damned you know like i read that early on and i was like how on earth are they going to be able to cinematically portray lestat as a rock star in a legitimate rock star way and the way they went about that and they pulled it off was through new metal and who would have thought that new metal could mesh so seamlessly with a vampire cheesy goth rock? Like, Korn was a legit hardcore metal band at the time. Well, I think seamlessly is a strong word, maybe. But it's definitely a film of its time, in mm -hmm. my opinion. So it came out in 2002. And I think if you're going to have Lestat be a rock star, to have him be anything but new metal... It doesn't really make sense. What I find interesting about uh, the portrayal of new metal, and we'll probably talk a bit about the music because it's so important to this film, is, is that you have new metal, which is very much one aesthetic. Unfortunately, the only aesthetic that is coming to my mind right now is Fred Durst's sex tape. 
but you've got this other kind of like you've got a new metal kind of thing happening in the audio. But um, Lestat is very much in my mind portrayed as a very goth uh, Jim Morrison Mm. in this film. So there's a little bit of a weird mashup happening. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, to have him do anything else but new metal. I did not expect to come and out of me, this film. Let me just say, if something was going to ma- wake me from a hundred years slumber, it'd probably be new metal. <laughs> I'd be like, you kids, cut it out with that damn racket. It's like, he, this is the time in history where I could actually pull off being a vampire, where I could turn it into a persona and have it land and have it stick and have it mean something to a wider audience. And the last thing I expected coming out of this film, and I saw this in the theater with a friend and it blew our minds. I was like, this film, on the one hand, super sucks, but on the other hand, speaks to me in such a big way. And I bought the soundtrack right away. And the soundtrack, I I didn't expect to love the music of the Vampire Lestat the way I did. I feel like I'm a bigger fan of the Queen of the Damned soundtrack than I am of anything that Korn made ever. And... The soundtrack, um, the songs were written and performed by Jonathan Davies, who is the lead singer of Korn. But the film, he had contractual commitments to Sony that meant that his vocals couldn't appear on the soundtrack. So when you're watching the film, the Vampire Lestat, when they perform, it's Jonathan Davis doing the vocals. But on the soundtrack, those songs are performed by other new metal musicians, including Wayne Static of Static X, uh, David Draymond from um, Disturbed, I think, Chester Bennington from Linkin Park, and Marilyn Manson, among others. So the soundtrack to this day, when I got together with my current partner, it was a revelation that like, I kind of love that soundtrack. You kind of love that soundtrack? (laughs) Oh my God. And next thing you know, we're listening to it and we quote it all the time. When someone does something stupid, it's, you think you're smart. You're not. (laughs) It's plain to see. Like, I love this soundtrack to this day. I don't think it's a great film, but it occupies a great big space in my heart. And I do think that it addresses a continuation of the themes that Interview with the Vampire set out, albeit in a much less sophisticated cinematic manner. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Like, for me, I kind of had this inkling in Interview the Vampire, and then Queen of the Damned really confirmed it in film form, that Lestat is just kind of like, you know when you're younger and you have that older boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and then you just refer to him as your shitty older boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lestat is everyone's shitty older boyfriend. He's that guy. He's that guy. He has a weird, ancient gentlemanliness about him, a weird worldliness, but at the same time, he's trying to marry it with the new age, and it doesn't work, but he makes it work. And He's still trying to hang out with your 22-year-old friends. That's right. (laughs) And he just wants to feed on them, which, you know, some some of them deserve it. Um, And I should say, uh, one of the few concerts Andrea and I have been to together was actually Korn. Oh, yeah. We saw Korn together. Yes, we did. I did not know what was happening. Yes. I got those tickets for free. But I did. And Dustin and I rocked the fuck out. But again, I maintain that Queen of the Damned is some of the best work that Jonathan Davis has ever done. And I think that was like a brilliant, brilliant adaptation of the film to bring it into the modern age to capture the zeitgeist of the early aughts. Yes. And I will say, while I'm not a fan of that music, having seen Korn live, like those guys know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. They are 
very talented. They've got that angry white boy with dreads shtick. They sound amazing. They were great on stage. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for me, but I could sit there and go like, I appreciate this. Like, I understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I could see the effect on the people around me. Mm -hmm. A lot of white men. It galvanized the white men. I just went to a Tool concert, like, last week, so I'm all about the the new metal and the... I'm not all the way there, but I get it. I, I really liked being able to go to the ladies' washroom and not have to wait in line. It's very exciting. Um, and, and I think that notion of um, being of a certain age brings in this notion of paratext, which is a literary term. And so if, if we look at – sorry, you were saying Queen of the Damned was 88 it was published? Correct. Um, so then again, we have another 50. Teenish plus year gap. Yeah. Um, and from book to screen, including the vampire Lestat. Um, and so you have to adapt it. So, if, uh, you know, I don't know if Anne Rice was envisioning him as a kind of new wave artist in the 1980s. And the probably. Late, like, I, I, probably Robert Smith. And in fact, oh, it I would it, have been so fucking down for that. I have to say that when I heard that Queen of the Damned was finally coming out, to me, Lestat was Villy Vallo from him. From the goth rock band him and I was like that is how I see him he's got that androgynous sex appeal um Stuart Townsend is an actor and not a musician and I get it again actor is a strong word Buh, come on he pulled it off <laughs> the casting of this film is uh I I have to say inspired because I think you know Aaliyah uh, if somehow you don't know, Aaliyah was cast to play Akasha, obviously, and before the film was completed, she uh, tragically died. And so the film was completed with uh, additional um, voiceover track from her brother, yeah. I believe. They kind of came in to do it. And it, it kind of reminds me of The Crow. It reminds me of The Crow in many ways, not only in the fact that its star uh, died before it was completed, but it... It gave that role the gravitas of this is that performer's last performance. Mm -hmm. And um, however you feel about Queen of the Damned's quality, Aaliyah was fucking amazing in it. Oh, yeah. She, like, that is... That is a pretty awesome performance. You know that had she had she gone on, she would have had a yeah. career in in yeah. show business. And, and, and she and was deviating a performer. from from new metal. I always really loved Aaliyah's music. I thought she was great in Romeo Must Die. This is her second film role. Um, she was excellent in this. Mm-hmm. Um, as as crappy as I thought Stuart Townsend was, I think Aaliyah is amazing. Okay, wait. You thought he was crappy? Like, was he written crappy, or did he perform crappy Both. as per? Really? Yeah. He's very goofy. It's a goofy script, though. I, I feel like he, he did the best he could with it. Like, to engender sex appeal on something so cheesy, would you throw him out of bed for eating crackers? Yep. I would not. Uh, you know, this is why we have uh, different partners. <laughs> Your partner is more like Stuart Townsend than mine. Stop it. <laughs> a compliment okay <laughs> i'll let him know um but yeah so anyway this notion of paratext which is basically when other materials inform the source so you have this let's say the source is the original text and then you have 
oh, okay, now we're actually going to fucking make this movie 15 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got uh, Stuart Townsend, who just got booted off of the Lord of the Rings movies because he was, quote unquote, too young to play the Viggo Mortensen character. Really? He was fired after he like. He was supposed to be Aragorn? Yeah, Aragorn, that's it. He was cast, he filmed a few days, and then they like fired him hmm. uh, and brought it brought in Viggo Mortensen and then he almost he very quickly got this Queen of the Damned role so anyway, you've got him and you've got Aaliyah who is this in- incredible R&B sensation having mm-hmm. worked with Missy Elliott and like her own emerging solo career um, and you've got all these like things around it and it just kind of metastasized in this new metal goth moment in film and what was really interesting for me um, thinking about this film watching this film is that I honestly always associated new metal and this is because that wasn't my scene with a more frat boy Mm -hmm. kind of entity rather Mm -hmm. than a goth entity and for me that was really coming off of Woodstock 99 Mm -hmm. um, which is where uh, Korn performed one day and it was like cool they did a good set everything's fine and then Limbiscuit came on the other day they incited riots, particularly uh-huh. when they performed break stuff. Um, and that was uh, – their set is often seen as the turning point in Woodstock 99. Right. So um, that – it was just interesting for me and now having done a little bit of research into new metal and its roots – just some of the lineage that came out of. And uh, it actually reminded me a bit of um, my first big undergrad class Mm -hmm. uh, that I did at Concordia in Montreal, which had to do with just art. And it was all different forms of art. And the professor was really great. It was one of those huge, huge lecture classes. Mm -hmm. And he um, came on, like, to the lecture stage one day, and he just started playing Gorillaz, the band. Yeah. And uh, he was like... I'm going to argue today this band would not exist without an iPod. Wow. And he was like, because you can upload all of your songs, whether it's rock, rap, hip-hop, what have you, and you have to mesh these forms together, Mm. and then they become something else. And I think you can hear all of those influences in this song, Mm. and that is how this technology is shaping our world now. Because coming out of that, yes, we had mixed CDs, but now we're into something even more available and more accessible and more wanted. Mm. So... I thought that was um, just an interesting linkage to Queen of the Damned in terms of going from uh, a new metal, which is really popular, and bringing it into this kind of gothic state. Yes, yes. It absolutely did that. Uh, I agree 100%. And then there's also that kind of meta-referentiality exists in Queen of the Damned in that uh, in the book, more overtly, Lestat's band is aware of Interview with the Vampire, the book. And when Lestat encounters that band, they give him the book and he reads it. And so he has this whole kind of like Louise perspective on things differ from mine, obviously. And he's, you know, encountering characters such as Armand that Lestat has a past in. So there is there is that kind of uh, that meta-referentiality mm. that I, I wish the movie went in a little bit further. But God, if I were to puzzle out the things that inspired this movie, I could <laughs> drive myself fucking crazy. But I feel like the movie addresses the fandom, the modern goth scene who would celebrate the idea of a vampire rock star. Mm. And I think that is something that the 90s could not have pulled off. 
No, and I and I think there was like these inklings of it at the end of the nineties in 1999 with the Columbine shootings. And yes. I'm sure we all remember how um, figures like Marilyn Manson in particular were targeted mm-hmm. as you cause this, you cause trench coat mafia. Yes. You, um, you, 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 you. Yeah. And it was you know, seen as this very vilified kind of thing. So I'm not surprised that there is kind of a movement towards, like, not an embrace of that intention of this violent thing, but as, like, a subversive other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like, Marilyn Manson and Columbine was kind of the end of the satanic panic, mm. moral panic, and the start of perhaps a new one because the vampire the vampire subculture had its own whole whack of bullshit. Uh, there was a website called vampirefreaks.com, which is, like, famous, famous, famous for, you know, a, a site where people... People would, you know, talk to each other about drinking blood and emulating vampire life and emulating vampire uh, predatory instincts. And and it was vilified in much the same way as Marilyn Manson was Mm -hmm. and other stuff like that. But it was attributed to vampires. It was linked with vampires and this vampire fandom that sprouted up in the wake of Interview with the Vampire. And I was talking about uh, – I, I mentioned that I was recording this episode to my staff member, Miriam, mm. who uh, who is the, um, the operations coordinator for Rue Morgue right now. And she mentioned how the book, Interview with the Vampire, was published in the late 70s and the movie didn't come out until 1994. And by that time, there had sprouted a vampire goth subculture. Mm. Goth subculture had emerged and so had a a certain infatuation with vampires that spawned directly from the film in that it was like, what would it be like to be a vampire? Nobody's talking about being a vampire hunter and being that kind of hero. The hero was the vampire who was able to uh, conquer his new fangled nature and 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 the predatory nature and the blood sucking and and to be able to live as an outsider among mortals and that was something that really spoke to this emerging gothic subculture at the time and when interview with a vampire came out god willing they embraced it they were just kind of like this captures the elegance and the artistry and all that that we that that we ascribe to the modern vampire. Queen of the Damned had a bit of a more, you know, <laughs> it, it didn't have the same kind of elegance, but it had that same livedness. It had that same reality that reminded me of, you know, the crow. Mm-hmm. The crow embodied the goth subculture in that there are people partying and living in communities who uh, embrace the darkness, mm-hmm. so to speak. That this is a subculture, and that this is a, this this is a community. And so, I thought Queen was really powerful in that it applied that to something that was kind of post goth, so to speak. Absolutely, and I think there is something to be said um, for because for me, at its core. After its silly, silly outer shell, this core, as well as Interview with the Vampire, is very much about loneliness and the way we can all feel ostracized from society in a variety of different ways uh, and excluded from things and, and how we seek other people out and how we seek out partners, how we seek out friends, how we seek out uh, a world that will embrace us. And 
It got me thinking about um, early on in the film, uh, Lestat talks about he wants to rise to be a new god. Mm-hmm. And who is the new god? And he hears this music and it all kind of fits in very carefully uh, in a really succinct way. And um, so I was actually uh, looking up a bit of um, psychology of fame. Okay. And uh, the psychology of fame, and it's in a Psychology Today article that we'll link in the show notes. But um, essentially, this whole article is about how people desire fame because it seems to represent a community. Mm. And ultimately, the rise to stardom is a rise to isolation. And you ostracize yourself uh, once you obtain it through different means. You have money, you have access, you have all of these things everyone around you can't quite understand. So they tend to leech onto you. Mm. And so if anything you have, it's just leeches. And ostensibly... Lestat is looking just for a partner. He is looking for someone to kind of be his other half, to be someone with him throughout this journey for at least a while because he's been on his own for a bit. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting to me that he initially associates it with godlike stature, which associates with fame, and then he very quickly finds out the emptiness of fame. And for me, I kind of feel like it's crystallized in that moment of I mean, again, this is one of those moments I had to rewatch again because I couldn't believe it was happening when they, all the vampires attack him on stage, oh. which is just – I was just like, it's not going to happen. It's not – oh, my God, it's happening. Oh, my God. And um, they're just these grumpy, hooded – Yeah. But then Akasha shows up and she's like, she, and all of these people around him who've come to see him are like cheering and scared, but cheering. And it's all very, um, it's basically like being at back of the the theater of vampires Mm -hmm. from interview with the vampire. Mm -hmm. It's it's just performative. There is a kind of almost a one way exchange in that relationship. And so finding something else is much more complicated. And I think uh, through the Vampire Chronicles, again, as an outsider, as I understand them, it's searching through these characters, how we connect with each other Mm. and where those moments of true, like when you see someone else, when you really see them and you accept them or you reject them or whatever it is and you you find that peace with someone else. I think that's um, an incredibly deep and important thing that this film this film is, is attempting to do and I give it credit for. Interview with the Vampire to me is a lonely Lestat looking for a partner and he looks for the nuclear family, he looks for a partnership, he looks for a relationship that functions such that he can indulge his bloodlust, still in the shadows but still doing his thing. In Queen of the Damned, he's like, you know what, fuck it, I am at the top of the food chain, these people are my fucking food and they should worship me and I feel like it's that narcissism that is actually what attracts Akasha to him mm-hmm. and Akasha in the book I have to say that Akasha's mandate in the book is to kill all the men mm-hmm. kill all the men all the mortal men and most of the vampire men and to rule an Eden-like situation that is mostly populated by women and Right. Like can't blame her. But this is this is Lestat kind of looking at things on a bigger scale and encountering somebody whose aspirations go even beyond his. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he wants fame so much as he wants 
acceptance. Mm -hmm. And he wanted that in the form of a partner initially, and then he wanted it in the form of, like, there's a community who are going to worship a vampire. I can be the vampire they worship. And then Akasha takes that that much further. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, man, Akasha's fucking so badass in the book. In the movie, I feel like I feel like she doesn't completely get her due, and I don't know if that's because they weren't able to shoot everything with Aaliyah that they entirely wanted to shoot. But I think the notion of cramming two very in-depth books together kind of forced everything to be glossed over. It's a lot, and especially in this narrative that is so homoerotic to have this really powerful woman breeze in and want to take over and not just rule men, but destroy them and kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I didn't know that this author was a female, I'd be like, this is an anti-feminist, reactionary, patriarchal reaction to feminism <laughs> as per 2000 and whatever the fuck. Yeah. But now I'm like, no, she's seen some shit. <laughs> she knows what she's talking she about. Does. So I've been talking about how Lestat was kind of pulled out of his slumber due to this call to the modern goth scene. He feels like the time is finally right for him to take his throne as, you know, as a rock god. And and certainly an argument could be made that in modernity, rock stars are kind of elevated to the point of – of uh, of deities, you know, like what they do and what they say is under a microscope and the music that they make is kind of um, – is kind of cast aside in 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 favor of the iconography that they occupy. And so I want to talk a little bit about goth subculture, but goddamn, I also don't want to talk about it because it is such a huge and diverse and complicated subject to tackle. And so in doing research on this topic, I referred to a book by a colleague of ours, Encyclopedia Gothica uh, yes. by Lisa Ladiser. Have you looked at that lately? I have not. I was reading um, her How to Kill a Vampire book for this okay. one. So that was uh, that was the more contemporary mm-hmm. version. Encyclopedia Gothica is an A to Z of all things goth. And Lisa, like we know her personally. Mm-hmm. She lives in Toronto and she is a brilliant writer and a really, really strong voice in terms of championing the goth subculture mm-hmm. and also uh, metal and other forms of music. She's very musically inclined, which is kind of a an aspect of goth that I feel like is on the other side of me. I kind of more occupy the, the, the fashion and cinema uh, aspect of goth, if I can even say that. <laughs> hey, I occupy none of it, so this is all learning for me. You know, like subculture is really interesting, and subculture is what really sparked my interest in sociology is, um, you know, I went to a Catholic high school and we had a dress code that was very kind of goth, like Mm -hmm. as per the craft. And so I never identified as goth in that time, even though my dress at the time was very much in there. And then later I worked at a skate shop and I became really interested in skate culture. It had its own thing. And initially I wanted to do my master's thesis on that, but I became enamored with third wave feminism and how they were reclaiming the domestic arts as per knitting and other stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so I was kind of like, oh, okay, this is what I wanted to work in. And then later when I moved to Toronto, I started to work at a goth bar and the people and the music in that bar were so different from the goth that I knew and that I had grown up with. It was all like dreadlocks and platform boots and I thought it was so fascinating even then, even though I wasn't officially practicing sociology anymore, 
how this subculture had had changed and negotiated itself and kept its insular identity, but was still mainstreamized such that you could go to Hot Topic <laughs> and kind of get the the the, the goth uh, starter kit. All those things, and it, it's it's identity through consumption. It's a way bigger topic than we have time to really tackle, as per this podcast. But I think I think it's worth discussing that subculture was studied by sociology as per the early '80s, and they were looking back as per academia does, and um, and they found that subcultures of the 1960s, they were looking at mods and skinheads and rockers in post-World War II Britain, and they found that these subcultures were largely class-based, mm-hmm. that these were lower-middle-class males who were frustrated over post-war roadblocks to achieving what they perceived to be the good life, the better standard of living, and People would join together to resist the mainstream that doesn't look promising to them. So, like, I can't get this great job and afford these great things. And so I'm going to glamorize the fact that my clothes are held together by safety pins and stuff like that. Like, that is a really, really reductive view of punk. And I know some of you are listening are going to be like, what the fuck is she talking about? Same thing with grunge. It was common among the working class because normal mainstream indicators of cool were unattainable. And so they invented their own sense of fitting in as a way to manage the limitations of their status, which to me is like so important and so inspiring and so cool as fuck. And I still see that to this day. So in no means do I mean to be disparaging of that. Like overthrowing ideologies of patriarchy and capitalism would be really nice. But short of that, we can show resistance by subscribing to subculture. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of its purpose. Um, But unlike most subcultures, goths are relatively – goths are really different. And goths are (laughs) – as a subculture that emerged in the early 80s, they have – Um, renegotiated and redefined themselves such that it's still a relevant subculture today. But it has certain characteristics that I think set itself apart from from the punk subculture that I was just talking about in that it's not so much about resistance or deviance from the mainstream in a certain – it's more about – celebrating things that the mainstream doesn't celebrate. Mm. Like, it's not a negation of wearing color. It's a celebration of wearing black. It's not a negation of life. It's a celebration of death. And I returned to Lisa Latticer's Encyclopedia Gothica because I was like, I feel like for this episode, I need to provide a definition of goth, and I cannot. And so I went to her introduction, and neither can she. And she kind of articulates it in the same way better than I am right now. Like she's a very witty and charming writer. But it's goths are attracted to the dark side, and that kind of casts them as other, and that kind of elicits um, a really sort of um, insular protectiveness. Mm. And I think a lot of people come up against the goth subculture and find it kind of snooty and find it kind of gother than thou and that there are very um, there are very high benchmarks as to what you need to be if you need to call yourselves goth. But like but that's that, that's all bullshit. Over the years, goth has renegotiated itself to it is a fashion sense. It is a taste in movies and music and whatever the fuck else. But it is also 
a populace that would embrace the idea of a real-life vampire. And so Queen of the Damned, I, I felt like it tackled that at at a zeitgeist, mm. at a right moment, that it was relevant and um, and something that, that I could feel at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bless my heart. I worked at The Gap in high school. You did? I did. I love a khaki. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's all in- incredibly relevant and very well stated. I, um, You know, and I think my only concern is that you thought far more about this than anyone on this film said. You know, but that's okay. <sighs> it's still, you know what? I don't always think as we talk about on this podcast that films are the maker of meaning as we say it is the audience who makes meaning. I agree with that. And I think when films tackle subculture, they often just kind of get the really Mm -hmm. superficial top layer of it. And yet when it comes to Queen of the Damned, it's just like, yeah, fucking rock on vampire. At at its core, that's something that if a band were to come out, like the band Him, for example, like just like he's a vampire. Cool. I'm with it. Rock and roll. And that giant concert that they stage in this movie mm-hmm. as cheesy as those new vampires are and you am lot vampires are <laughs> i would go to that concert and have the time of my fucking life oh if i had the money i'd make that concert happen That's, for you it's too late but it was the perfect era for lestat to come out in more ways than one like not just for his overt you know homoerotic i'm gonna be who i'm gonna be but like but i'm i'm worship me yeah. Bend the fucking knee. But I would like to touch on Akasha as a kind of figure in this film because, um, my, again, my understanding from the books is she's got this kind of really rich, involved history involving witches, and she was the queen of Egypt, and mm-hmm. she is the OG vampire along with her husband. That's right. And it, it sounds absolutely fascinating, and the film kind of glosses over it. It gives you enough so that you can kind of glean some of that. Not really enough. Not enough, but also enough. Can what you I, imagine a film where they were like, she wants to wipe out all the men? And yes. Well, I, I can. Not one that would get financed. Well, not in 2001. But one that I would watch. <laughs> Uh, but what I found was really interesting about Akasha is um, how she begins the film is petrified, literally petrified. She is a statue. She is stone or also kind of living stone. She's mm-hmm. something. Anyway, she's she's a statue along with her husband. And it's like a slumber. Yeah. And, and it's kind of because her husband gave up the ghost, so she did as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Lestat's sexy violin playing starts to wake her up. And then when he becomes a rock god, it fully seems to wake her up. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's not quite the same thing, it really brought me back to the notion of Medusa. Very famous snake-headed lady. You look at her and you turn to stone. Yeah, she was a gorgon. Yeah. So coming from like a kind of Greek mythology. And uh, so obviously it is not the same thing as Medusa, but there are some kind of tangible elements that are really similar. And what I found was interesting is that the general assumption around the reading of Medusa is that she is a fear of female seduction. Yeah. Should you gaze upon her, you will turn to stone. But she's also been portrayed throughout film, art, um, as very scary or very sexual, very attractive, things like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. if Uma Thurman's going to play you, then... Uma Thurman played Medusa? Yeah, in some kind of YA novel adaptation. 
Anyway. Um, but it kind of also got me thinking of her as she is the mother to vampires. Mm-hmm. But she is also, in many ways, especially within this film, without the knowledge of the novel, a kind of anti-mother. And more of a king rather than a queen, because certainly for the queen within ancient Egypt, some of her goals that I have here were to provide as many children as possible, uh, to ensure a smooth running of palace, uh, to take over when necessary, i.e. your husband dies and your son isn't of age yet, um, to be passive and offer support. Mm -hmm. And she seems to be the key operator in everything. She's got a plan. She knows how she's going to do it. Lestat, you're taking a nap. Cool. I'm going to murder a beach of people. Yeah. So, and I kind of wanted to feel you out on that because I see her as a ruler, Mm -hmm. as she's calling the shots. And yet the fact that she's so evil and the fact that she dispatches Enkil, her, uh, her, her actual king before he's able to fully rouse himself she kind of uh, gets rid of him i feel like she's kind of cast as this um usurper i i can see that but i think by not having any access to the king and kill at all it's hard to have that reading mm. it's it's such a like footnote to everything um it just uh, but it's interesting because it plays into um something that we touched on with interview with the vampire is the notion of um placement within society mm. you know when she talks to Lestat about like you're such a king you're bold like your music You live your life in the open, like I did, long ago, when I had a king. Had a king? He's no more. Now you are my consort. That's why I kept you safe. Alive. You? You thought it was all you? The ego of a king as well. Yes. I know you that. I know that you crave to have the world at your feet. And I've come to give it to you. She speaks to Lestat as though his terrible qualities are the best qualities for him to be a king. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, you know, maybe she's the puppet master, maybe she's something else. But again, it's it's a little hard for me to get a read on this because I find Aaliyah so watchable in this role. I'm like, I'd fucking watch Akasha do laundry at this point. Like, it's not that she would ever do laundry, but... No, hell no. No. Those, those outfits are one and done. Well, isn't this kind of like what cinema would view a powerful woman as? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, there's there's no legit claim to the throne, especially if she's going to be, like, dispatching all these men. She's got to be some kind of usurper. She's got to be some kind of, like, bad influence on the benevolent Lestat who really just wants to mind his own business. Yeah. And then, I mean, again, when you kind of um, contrast her with Jesse's aunt um, – who is kind of Jesse's protector and seemingly a good vampire. And then when she gives the final kind of 
death knell sucking the life out of Akasha, Mm -hmm. she doesn't immediately burst into flames or fire. She becomes this very peaceful-looking statue. Yeah, she assumes that death, that slumber. Yeah, but there is the thing, there is the notion that she is maybe not quite fully dead. So it's, um, I mean, I think this film, for all of its interestingness about goth and subcultures and new metal and the way it's pulling those elements together to have a commentary about um, popular subcultures and subversions, it, it doesn't do right by its female characters. No. At the end of the day, feminine power is still something to be feared. Yeah. That's, I mean, welcome to the faculty of horror. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps in that spirit, I want to mention a really interesting article that I came across right at the tail end of my research as all the best articles emerge. It was called My Vampire Boyfriend, Post-Feminism and Perfect Masculinity. And right away, right there in the title, I was just kind of like, post-feminism, eh? In seven years of this podcast, have we ever actually tackled the notion of post-feminism? God, I hope not. You know, it's a murky, murky thing. And I, I did research, guys, and I, I, if, I could, if I could give you a clear-cut definition as to what post-feminism is, I would. But it seems like it's something that's still kind of contested. Basically, post-feminism reacts against contradictions and absences of feminism. And that include things like uh, gender binary, intersectionality, stuff that like we have addressed in this podcast that could be construed as post-feminist. But there is also a post-feminist stream of thought that believes that the ideals of classical feminism no longer apply. Um, I don't subscribe to that. I kind of like, yes, we're not fighting for the right to vote anymore, but I don't think that fight is irrelevant today. I think that fight manifests itself in other battles today, personally. Um, But anyway, this article goes on to describe how post-feminism and masculinity goes on to inform the trend of young adult books about women falling for vampires. And obviously the Big example of that is Twilight, but it also manifests itself in stuff like True Blood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a lot of modern culture things. Because vampires are depicted as these old world gentlemanly types who, you know, they they don't impose a whole lot upon their human female counterpart. They just offer this kind of really old school gentlemanly feminist thing where you discover yourself and I will be here when you're ready for you. And that's kind of like, it's kind of a theoretical framework to describe the appeal of Twilight. And I, I, I know I've said to you personally, and I think I've said publicly a couple of times that when I'm ready to commit career suicide, I will defend Twilight as as a fantasy that when I was 16, that would have captivated me. I would have been 100% on board with all its anti-feminist warts and all because there is a sort of romance mm-hmm. to that kind of old school, worldly, this is a man who will take care of me and he is powerful and I want to give myself over to that power. I think that is a thing. And I think Interview with the Vampire complicates that in that we are not dealing with immortal mortal dynamics we are dealing with dynamics between immortals Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I look forward to your final issue as editor of Room Org, where you put Twilight on the cover. Um, oh, on the cover? On the cover. Could you imagine? It's funny. I was thinking about that just today because Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson were so maligned when they did Twilight. Like, not only that the content, not only that the films and the books were garbage, but that they were garbage. And mm-hmm. yet both of them now have had kind of a resurgence of their careers, mm-hmm. that they're being acknowledged as masters of their craft. And I'm like, oh, isn't that funny? When they're not making a movie that's not meant for you, they're garbage. But now that they're making your little indie darlings, they're all the shit, aren't they? Hey, you love The Lighthouse. I love The Lighthouse. And I think I think Robert Pattinson is great. I think Kristen Stewart is great. And I think um, – I want to say blacklisting, but obviously it wasn't a blacklist because they're still getting work. Backlash. Yeah, but I, th- I think exactly what you're saying. It's, you know, when you're younger and you kind of have this notion of – your shitty older boyfriend as having that kind of power, that kind of guidance. Um, And then you realize they're just shitty and older. And then you kind of meet someone who's on your level. You decide to partner with them and you start to make your life together. And you realize that they are just, if not more, fallible than you are. It's not right, but that doesn't make it any less relevant and any less worthy of this Mm -hmm. kind of inquiry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, that's all I've got to say. The Vampire Chronicles are, like I said, the books are ongoing. So there's there's always hope for a movie. There's always hope that I call it hope. To quote Lestat, there's life in this old girl yet. <laughs> you said that? Yeah, when he's dancing with Claudia's mom. Um Yeah, I, I, it's funny because even though I've never fully bought into this realm of storytelling, I I still feel invited as an outsider to enjoy it, to play in it. And I think there is a lot to be discussed. I'm sad um, that they aren't making more of these films. I think, you know, Hollywood has kind of run its course with Anne Rice. I would be very shocked if they make well, anything else of hers. I will say that the last uh, rumblings I heard of Anne Rice was that she's very enamored with the TV horror format. She right. was really inspired by Game of Thrones, the amount of sex, the amount of gay sex, and the amount of violence they were able to depict. She was like, I think TV is finally ready for the Vampire Chronicles. The question is whether they let her do it the way she wants to and whether the way she wants to is the way we want her to. Yeah, so I, I do hope that we will get further iterations of these vampire chronicles of her other stories because I think even though they didn't speak to me on a page format, she's a really unique storyteller with a lot of interesting things to say Um, and I think these two films kind of prove that there are very very different ways to say them so I would be very excited to see where they go but um, I'm really glad we tackled these films because they they certainly Uh, represent certain stakes in the uh, horror canon. Oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, this is the modernized vampire. It's there's an aspect of goth subculture that still romanticizes this Victorian Edwardian old worldness. And that directly addresses Anne Rice's ancients, as far as I can tell. And then also the new metal. Also the new metal. How could we ever forget about that new metal? Bah with a bah, my friends. <gasps> oh, man. Okay, so that is us for Interview the Vampire and Queen of the Damned. And next month, it's the holidays. It's our anniversary. It's our anniversary and it's the holidays. Yeah. It's a big month. And? 
And what are we going to do? What we are going to do is, I think, going to be really fun. I hope you enjoy it because uh, it's gruesome. It's bloody. Mm-hmm. It's gutty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is Inside or A L'Intérieur, the new French extremity Christmas classic. Mm-hmm. Lock your doors because Beatrice Dahl is going to come get you inside. Or unlock your doors. That's true. She's very pretty. So hot. So. I'm excited. I'm excited, too. And until you dump your shitty older boyfriend, office hours are closed. Sandwiches, Van Helsing. <laughs> 